0: You're listening to You Might Have a Point. In each episode, I bring on a different guest to discuss politics and related topics. The point of the show is to get to know more about what the guest believes and why, which is why we primarily discuss their own views and not my own. I believe in learning about a broad range of viewpoints so that even when you disagree with someone about a lot of things, you can still sometimes say, you know, you might have a point. You can find out more at youmighthaveapoint.com. I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast, Iona Italia. She's currently the sub editor and soon to be the editor and head of Aereo Magazine. She's the author of two books and is the host of the Two for Tea podcast. Iona, Iona, excuse me. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, Stephen. Thank you for inviting me on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, How I like to begin the podcast is just ask you, how would you describe your ideology or worldview?
1: Uh, So I describe myself as a universal liberal humanist, and what that means is that um, I believe in the fundamental uh, equality and dignity of all human beings, regardless of sex, sexuality, gender, race, ethnicity, or nationality, or religion, uh, or lack of religion. and I am, um, I am definitely um, a liberal in the more conventional American sense. Also, um, I, I am um, very much left of center, I believe in, I, um, I'm, I'm not a Marxist, I think capitalism is vital for wealth generation. But I would like to see capitalism tempered by safeguards to protect the weaker members of society so I believe strongly in the welfare state in universal health care that is free at point of use because we don't choose how healthy or otherwise we are so that I feel shouldn't be treated like a consumer good Um, and I am um I'm also an internationalist. I don't think um, race is an important factor in people's personality, worth, value, etc. And I'm also uh, not an identity politician. So I think that everybody can have a valid opinion on anything. And your identity does not determine how valid or correct your opinion or view is.
0: Okay, great. Um, is there a certain style that you try to bring to your writing in politics? How do you think about that?
1: Hmm. Um, I think it's important to uh, be persuasive rather than kind of peacocking and signaling. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to write hyperbolic or inflammatory pieces that people who are already on your side who already agree with you will greatly enjoy but which will be absolutely alienating to anybody who doesn't already agree with you Mm -hmm. i think it's important to um, assume that people who disagree with you are both disagreeing in good faith and are as intelligent as you are that's Mm -hmm. vital I find that too many political writers condescend. And as soon as I feel that I'm being condescended to, you have lost me. So I think it's important to be, to be calm, to be convincing, to be persuasive, to avoid personal attacks. And which I haven't always managed to do on mm-hmm. Twitter, but I have at least managed to do in my writing, in my published writing. Um, and to be willing to form broad coalitions also not to be policing who is allowed to agree with you for example but to try to win people over issue by issue including people with whom you might disagree on many or most things Um, you want to get them on site as much as you can for as many of them the things that you think are more important as you can and for me the number one most important thing because this is what makes the entire discussion possible is freedom of speech. So that is the hill that, that's the most important hill that I would die on.
0: Great. Um, so I'm curious to hear more about uh, your career path and what led you to venture into journalism. I think you were formerly uh, in academia, you have a PhD, you taught, I think 17th century, century English literature. 18th. Um, 18th, I'm sorry. So, um, yeah, I'm curious to hear what got you more interested in sort of expanding out beyond that.
1: So I actually um, taught and I was an academic until 2006. Okay. And um, I wrote my PhD. I finished my PhD in 1996. probably shouldn't say that. Nowadays, people are born in 1996 and later, which is very terrifying and should be illegal. But um, I finished my PhD in 96 and I converted it and hugely enlarged it into a book, which was published in 2003. And it's on 18th century essays. It's called Anxious Employment, a title which has become disconcertingly autobiographical for me. (laughs) (laughs) So just in case there's some kind of jinx, be very careful what you call your books, your first book, it may govern your fate. Um, But in 2006, I went, I took a, um, a year out to go to Argentina with my then husband. We both took unpaid leave for a year. And my plan was, I had always enjoyed dancing as a hobby. I've always been the person, the, the first person out on the dance floor at a party, the last person to sit down. I won some disco dancing competitions as a teen. Um, and I did various forms of dance, always just as a hobby. But the dance that I particularly fell in love with was Argentine tango. And I went out there in 2006 to spend one year just studying uh, intensely, studying tango and improving my dancing. And the plan was to return to academe afterwards. And being a completely crazy and reckless person, by the end of the year, I no longer wanted to return to my academic career. I see. And I decided to stay in Argentina. And I lived in Argentina for 11 years in the end and I um, I did some freelance gigs as a mostly as a translator and some copy editing gigs to kind of keep body and soul together and mostly I worked as a dancer and dance teacher and I wrote two books about um, dance during that time and then in Two thousand and two thousand and seventeen. 2017, I had a kind of midlife crisis and I I grew up in, I I spent my childhood in Pakistan. I grew up in the Pakistani Parsi community in Karachi and I have never been back to Pakistan and I frankly don't feel safe in Pakistan. Hmm. Almost all of the Parsi community have left because it is extremely difficult and even dangerous to live as a religious minority in Pakistan. So almost all the community where I grew up have left, but there is a huge um, Parsi community, the most important one in the world in Bombay in India. So uh, in 2017, I decided to go to India and I spent two years in the community in India, living in the Parsi uh, neighborhood there. And I did teach tango in India, but there are very few people who dance tango there. It's a tiny little niche scene. So I needed to find another means of um, making an income. And I started writing some journalistic pieces. And then in mid and 17, I think it was August 2017, um, Helen Pluckrose took over ARIO magazine from the founder Malhar Mali, And uh, she and I had interacted a lot on Twitter, we'd met on Twitter. Our first interaction actually was we had a huge fight and we mutually blocked each other. Uh, but then friends of ours got us to unblock each other and we became... Uh, It was the start of a beautiful friendship. That's funny. (laughs) And um, uh, so Helen asked me to join her as the copy editor in ARIO. So um, that became one of my major sources of income. And um, I continued doing that after I returned to Argentina. And I really enjoyed the return to more cerebral work, to writing and editing and reading and thinking. And I just, um, and also, you know, I'm in my fifties. I no longer wanted to try to dedicate my life to professional dance. So, um, I sort of, that's how I kind of, I guess I went into journalism.
0: Great. Yeah. And so now
1: now I'm living back in, in London. Okay. I moved back to London a, a year ago.
0: Um, so now I'd like to talk more about Aereo, um, If you could just tell the listeners broadly about its mission and its history, and then we can move into uh, discussing the present.
1: Sure. So, um, Ario the magazine also has an ethos of universal liberal humanism. I.E. We welcome writers from both sides of the political spectrum and Although I think that I, I personally don't feel a need to keep a kind of exact balance, I'm happy to have more leftists than right-leaning people in the magazine because um, I feel that there are uh, Quillette is a very hospitable space for right-leaning um, mm-hmm. refugees from the culture wars. Um, but I am happy. I am happy for right-leaning and conservative-leaning people to also write for the magazine. So we have people from both sides of the political spectrum, probably more left-leftists than right-wingers. Most of them are critical of social justice ideology, so-called woke ideology. Um, not all, um, most of them are critical of woke ideology, um, and many of them are academics who either want to voice opinions that are that go against the status quo of the atmosphere in the acad- in the academy in the UK and in the US in particular and, um, and then we also have a number of scientists who write for us regularly who write on purely scientific and technical subjects um, and also um, quite a few members of the public, people who aren't professional writers, but just have something they would like to say, and we have offered a home to a lot of those people, and some of them have turned out to be absolutely fantastic writers. So, I would say that what characterizes us, a little bit of blue water between us and um, a publication like Quillette, which I, I also love Quillette. I think mm-hmm. it's very important that there is diversity in the media ecosystem. So when I say we're different, I'm not in the business of denigrating them. Sure. But I think that we are um, we are somewhat more interested in a critique of social justice that comes from the left Um, dissident leftists, as I would I would call them. Okay. Um, And we are also um, we're also less interested in personal anecdotes. Quillette provides people with a platform for a lot of personal stories. And we are more interested in um, arguments than in, in personal stories. And that will probably continue to be the case because I, I won't have the resources to do very rigorous fact-checking, and therefore I'm a, I'm a little bit wary on mm. both journalistic and also on legal grounds of publishing somebody's personal story that I can't fully verify. Sure. So we're more interested in a, in a kind of uh, in thoughtful explorations of topics in general. And we're also happy to publish responses to and rebuttals of pieces that have appeared in our magazine. So we do also welcome people who are from the social justice left if they want to answer critiques that have been made. I think it's very important to keep the um, the doors open and the lines of communication open. And I would say that we have a much more rigorous and intellectual approach than most of the um, many of the large magazines like Vox and Salon and places like that. Um, And I try to keep the language toned down so it's not condescending and it's not inflammatory and it's not sort of abusive and rude. And I also I try to copy edit in such a way that we don't rewrite people's articles in the style of the magazine, which some um, publications, for example, Persuasion, which is a quite similar publication to ours in a way, mm-hmm. Yasha Monk's recent publication, um, for whom I've, I used to work as a copy editor. So I've seen it from the inside. Their brief is that they they want the magazine to have one uniform style. Mm. So they tend to... Take the writer's argument and then uh, rewrite it in the style of the magazine. Um, and because they they like the kind of idea of one single voice, mm-hmm. uh, the magazine having one single voice, and I am, um, I'm, I'm uh, that's a valid approach. It's an approach that some very respectable publications take, sure. such as the Economist. But I'm. I prefer to have a multiplicity of voices and I just copy edit to keep things really taught and concise, um, and jargon free and nice and clear and readable and lively.
0: Great. So, yeah, I think, uh, just yesterday, actually you and Helen shared some news about the future of the publication. So could you talk about that?
1: Yes, sure. So um Helen has been the editor-in-chief of the publication since August 2017 and uh, she is now leaving to run her organization counterweight which is an advocacy organization for people who are in trouble with their employers because of their refusal to um to agree with or parrot or um or go along with social justice orthodoxy, um, and because she wants to devote more time to that organization, I am taking over as the editor-in-chief. Helen will still be um, will still be writing for the magazine, and will still be involved. But I'm going to be the one taking the decisions and deciding on the direction of the magazine and the st- our strategies. And it's um, so under Helen, like many creative and brilliant people, Helen absolutely cannot stand dealing with or having to ask for or in any way even mentioning filthy lucre. Um, she does not like to ask people for money. And um, she basically did no marketing whatsoever during her tenure. So surprisingly we still had 251 patrons who signed up and gave us some money. God bless those people because I think they didn't even get any rewards or shout outs or anything. Nothing was done to manage the Patreon whatsoever. Um, And I wasn't in charge so it wasn't it wasn't up to me. Um, And Helen did, Helen ran the magazine without taking any payment from it, pro bono. She has other sources of income, though uh, Though I must stress that she is not wealthy. Her husband is a forklift truck driver, and uh, they do own their own tiny um, house in Essex, um, in a kind of working class neighborhood of Essex, which Helen Helen was very um, prudent and bought early on. And she also her parents have money. So if she is ever in any dire straits, she can rely on that. So she felt that she was able to do aria without drawing an income from it being supported in that way. Um, very modestly, but without needing that income. And so that is how aria has been run since 2017. So I'm arriving to find that that the finances are in dire straits. <laughs> I'm taking the helm of this ship and we are just heading for a reef. Mm, wow. <laughs> if I don't like turn it around quickly, we are going to get a leak in the bottom and go under. We had a lump sum grant um, about a couple of years ago, which is almost depleted. And I'm going to use the last part of that grant for the next few months to pay myself because I unfortunately, I'm, I'm not married. My boyfriend is, is not wealthy <laughs> and um, I can't work pro bono. So I'm going to use the last of that lump sum grant to fund myself as I try to get ARIO in shape. And I reckon that we need to, for the magazine to run in the way that it currently is, um, And to pay myself a salary, because it's going to be a more than full-time job, ideally, I need to also hire an assistant copy editor and things, but there's no chance of that further right now. Um, To pay myself and to pay our writers and a few other things we need to pay, um, and to cover the fact that we have to pay business taxes um, on ARIO, we need a minimum I would say an absolute minimum of $9,000 a month. And our current income is $1,750. You've got a big task ahead of you. (laughs) Yes. Well, I have raised it from it was $1,400. So I made $350 additional dollars in in 24 hours. But um, yeah. Um, And my plan is... I want to get as many people on board um, as regular supporters as possible. We have five to 10,000 people reading our articles each day. That's quite decent. Um, that's an average and some of the more popular articles have had um, 200,000 views and our total page views are in the millions. So. Um, There are a lot of eyeballs on our articles, but of course, um, very few people are subscribing and paying and nothing is paywalled. So first of all, I'd like to encourage as many people as possible. If you care about our our magazine, if you want this kind of viewpoint diversity um, that is helping to keep our kind of intellectual ecosystem healthy, then What is a small amount of money to you per month could be really important to us if enough people give it so. um, We have Patreon and I have started a subscribe star and I've added a bunch of rewards to the Patreon tiers. I'm also encouraging people who have a bit more money um, to sponsor writers, so I have somebody who is already sponsoring me who's sponsoring me to write a monthly um, article. Uh, that money would go directly to writers and it would allow me to um hire some more prestigious writers for our publication and um we also have paypal for donations then i am putting together a um a special inaugural free speech issue which will come out in mid-may which i'm going to use as a portfolio to pitch to funders so i'm looking for more major funding also um and the more people we have signed up to our patreon also the easier it will be to convince funders that we are important and then finally i'm also open to putting advertising on the site and on my own podcast which is now going to be the ario podcast my two for tea podcast um so anybody who can help in any way please do so um, I'm also we do pay writers, but if you are um, if you are a writer and um, a person of means, say you are someone who has a professional job and you're just writing a one off article um, to voice your own opinions and you feel able to donate your writer's fee to the magazine, it will be plied straight back in um i'm also grateful to that i'm very grateful to all our writers and contributors because we don't pay a lot and we've had some absolutely amazing people writing for us award-winning novelists and research scientists and really prominent academics um and they're writing for us because they they want to publish with us not because we're paying them the big bucks so I'm immensely grateful to everyone who supported us, despite the fact that for years, there has been no marketing, no rewards, and no attempt to lure people. But that is all changing because I am not Helen. I love Helen, but I am not her. Yeah.
0: (laughs) No, I think um, in the life cycle of any organization, sometimes a change in leadership can be what it needs. So it sounds like you've got a a lot of plans and a a good path forward. Uh, Congratulations and good luck.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Um, Oh, I think one other thing that I read about in your plans for area was expanding out beyond the current topics that you cover. Are you looking to broaden the the issues that you have in the magazine?
1: Um, Yes. I mean, we do already have a kind of arts and culture and science section, um, but I would definitely like those to be Expanded a bit, so I would um, ideally, if we're talking about a kind of dream scenario, um, I would love to be able to publish six or maybe eight articles a week, four on science and four on arts and culture, and I would love to have a science day, like say Thursday, is science day at ARIO and Friday is arts and culture day. Um, and I would also love to have more international writers on board. And in particular, um, Aryo has a quite substantive um, Indian readership. Um, and of course, I I am Indian and I have that connection. Um, and I would um I would love to get some people on board to talk about the situation in India, which I think is a very important topic we have had some articles in that but i would uh really welcome more more indian voices in the magazine um our core readership is and will remain um is likely to remain um an american readership i think we have about three quarters um we we have maybe 70 percent american readers and maybe 30% UK readers, uh, which is also why I publish it usually publish at 6pm UK time so that we can get the um, the West Coast Americans as they're having their breakfast. And um, also, I, I suspect that for the foreseeable future, also culture war topics will continue to be very important. And I think it is really important to have a, a a platform for um, people who are who want to push back against um, social justice ideology which has become so much the orthodoxy and the status quo um, and who push back against it in a way that may win people over rather than in a kind of self congratulatory. We are all anti-wokes together here, so we mm-hmm. can be rude and bitch about the woke people style, which is which is really not my style. Um I don't think that anybody should be demonized. Um and I'm not I'm not into demonizing people who are aficionados of that um ideology. Some of them are my close personal friends. I just think they're wrong. So <laughs> <laughs> Um,
0: okay. Um, so now like to move now to discuss a couple of your recent articles that you've written, um, the first one, it was in the Washington examiner and it was how British cops became the literal speech police. So could you, um, just sort of summarize the argument that you're making in that piece?
1: Uh, sure. So the piece is about, um, it's largely about free speech on social media and in the uk um we have um uh we have a law which is called the um offensive communications act and this law was initially it was it's very clear in the initial wording of the law which stems from i believe it stems originally from 1931 but it's been updated several times it was clearly meant to be a law that prevented nuisance and prank calling. Um, people, you know, making actual phone calls or writing letters to individuals. But it's come to cover activity on the, on the web. And under this law, um, people have been prosecuted. For example, famously, um, the comedian who is um, known as Count um, Dr- Dankiller was prosecuted successfully under that law for a YouTube video in which his girlfriend's dog is doing the Hitler salute. There have also been prosecutions of people who've made edgy jokes online um, and of two, uh, men who were, um, two men who were two men who are on a chat forum um talking about sexual fantasies involving children. I know a very distasteful topic, um, but they were not talking to children. This was two adults talking to each other. Um, they were successfully prosecuted under the Act. There have also been, there's also uh, in addition to the prosecutions, there are guidelines for police, and those guidelines state that police are empowered to investigate what are called non-crime hate incidents, this really Orwellian term, yeah. which is basically tweets that offended, uh, mostly tweets, sometimes also Facebook statuses that offended people. Wow. And uh, police have come to people's workplaces to talk to their employers um, about their tweets and Facebook statuses and um, and have shown up at people's private homes Um, and some of those prosecutions have been people um, gender critical types saying things like trans women are not women Um, there was one there was one incident in which it was a limerick which was about it was kind of a I mean I find it offensive but I also don't I'm not in the Don't business think it should of be wanting things sure. prosecuted that I find sure. offensive. It was kind of a very rude tweet about how trans women are all ugly men in dresses. Um, but this should not be a matter for the police. Mm-hmm. Um, there, were, there have been some quite ludicrous cases also. There was one um, guy who put up Christmas decorations in his home. And they had a bell in lights, and then it said the word "end" in lights. Um, and "bell end" is, is um, slang for the gland of the pe- the penile gland. Um, and the police came round to make him take those lights down. <laughs> um, and there was also notoriously a guy was prosecuted for um, drawing a pen, doodling a penis on um, on a. On a a photograph of a policeman and publishing that on his Snapchat. Um, so it's, it's really, it's not even um, I it's, wouldn't say, I mean, I think there's a The vast majority a kind of, of cases are yeah, about
0: respectability as opposed to exactly, politics. Yeah. Exactly,
1: exactly, exactly. Um, and I just think it's both an incredible misuse of police time. And I think it's also extremely dangerous because one person's offensiveness or rudeness is another person's necessary outspokenness. And I think it's infantilizing. Um, I mean, one thing that I wrote in the article, which the editors did cut because they felt it was too risque. um, But I said that, you know, sometimes um, the polite and decorous thing is not always the correct thing to is not always the most honest or the most appropriate thing to say. Um, we're all adults here. Sometimes it is important to know exactly not only what people think, but how they feel and how strongly they feel. Mm. And so sometimes go fuck yourself, you cunts. So I hope you can publish this in your podcast. Yeah, it's is fun. a is is actually a more appropriate response than and a more honest response than. I respectfully beg to disagree with your opinion um and we're as adults we should be permitted to to say that
0: okay um so you talked a little bit about the the us and how it compares to the uk as well um so i think one possible difference is that in the us actually it um threats to free speech are more along political lines would you say that's right
1: uh, yes, I think so. I mean, I have seen threats from both right and left. Um, I am, even though I am not a fan at all of critical race theory, to put it mildly, um, some of the activity I've seen from Chris Rufo, um, who has blocked me on Twitter, and others of his supporters has seemed very anti free speech to me. Um, It seems it's one thing to say um, we shouldn't be funding this or it shouldn't be mandatory, but um, it's quite another to say you shouldn't be allowed to do a critical race theory training or to teach critical race theory or whatever. Um, That seems to me to be censorship. Mm -hmm. And um, I've also noted... um, I mean, the people who censor you are the people who have power over you. And those people can be left or right wing. Um, And it's more difficult in the US for the right to um, censor people because um, the US has very strong protections against government censorship, which I wish to God we had in the UK, but we do not. I wish we had a first amendment, um, but we have absolutely no such thing. Um, But because the U.S. has strong protections that prevent the state from censoring you, um, the people who are more likely to censor you are your employers, number one, um, and also your university uh, or your magazine or newspaper. Um, And most of the... um, most of higher education and the media is left-leaning, and therefore uh, most of those censorship attempts are coming from the left. At universities, actually, it's a little, it's a little bit more equal hmm. because although there's a lot of kind of ideological censorship um, uh, that is, is coming from the kind of social justice left, also um, university administrations don't like to be shown up so they don't like criticism of their corporate sponsors who are often more right-leaning or of their own kind of policies and stuff. And as Greg Lukianoff, uh, when I spoke to Greg Lukianov, the head of FIRE, um, he told me that in fact, m- the majority of the cases, there are too many ideological censorship cases, mm-hmm. but there are even more cases in which the administration is trying to shut up students who are being rude about the politics of the college and these are leftist students who are um, critiquing them for for charging too much or for being in bed with dodgy companies or um, for other elements of their the kind of colleges corporate and administrative mm-hmm. dealings that they don't want to have criticized um, so yeah i would say it's important to note that The urge to censorship is very deeply, is a very deep rooted human urge. Nobody likes to be harshly critiqued. Nobody likes to other people to say things about them that they prefer weren't publicly known. Um, And so when you, uh, power corrupts in this way, when you have power over others, there is always the temptation to censor them and we have to fight against that. So it's not, it's not a left-right thing. It's who has power over you? That person is more likely to, to You have to watch out for that person's um, censoring you. And that's why we need across cross the board protections.
0: Great. Um, so now I'd like to ask you about your uh, piece in Aereo, um, Not All Men. Could you uh, talk a little bit about that?
1: Uh, sure. Do you want to ask a specific question?
0: Uh, yeah. So um, I guess um, if if you don't mind sort of um, recounting uh, the story that you start out in the piece with, um, that would be great. And if 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 you do mind, then um, you could. Um, then I can ask something else.
1: Uh, sure. Would you like me to read? Would you like me to read it?
0: Um, sure.
1: Okay, I'm going to read the first uh, couple of paragraphs. Imagine if we lived in a world populated by two races of beings. One of them not only markedly physically stronger than the other, but more naturally prone to violence by almost an entire order of magnitude and deeply motivated to pursue their weaker cohabitants. These are the frightening conditions on the fictional planet Kaminar in Star Trek Discovery. They are also the conditions on planet Earth between men and women. The truth of this was brought home to me in the most powerful way on the 22nd of May 2018 on a dusty street in a northern suburb of Bombay when a chubby little man in his 40s in a polycotton office suit and co- uh, sh- office shirt and khakis swam suddenly into focus as if out of nowhere and grabbed me by the wrists after a second of shocked paralysis i began banshee screaming and struggling with all my might it was useless he found it trivially easy to immobilize me as his friends encircled us boxing me in The next 40 minutes were the most terrifying of my life. In the end, I escaped to safety, physically unhurt, but I will never forget the feeling of helplessness, of existential threat. For a while, the world seemed peopled with only hunters and hunted, and I was the prey.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, So I guess, uh, if, hey, let me summarize the, the the core thesis of the piece, which is essentially that, as you've stated, that um, the uh, significant difference on average between men and women's physical strengths results in a world in which women are more in danger, um, but that we shouldn't uh, lead this to conclude that we should vilify all men, um, uh, and that uh, basically even we sh- we should encourage um w- women ch- are rational if they are more wary of uh, an, an individual man than a woman on average but that we shouldn't um assume that all men are or most men are even uh, going to be physically dangerous
1: yeah i think endangered is perhaps the wrong word i okay. think it's more that um women feel more vulnerable and are more vulnerable in those in those situations okay. as a general rule and that's because of the strength differential between men and women um and also uh men are are um only a small proportion of men are violent um and almost all of those are men within a certain age range between about i think 17 and around 24 25 mm-hmm. um but, um nevertheless, if violence occurs, the likelihood that it was a man who committed the violence is ninety seven percent or mm-hmm. something like I'm taking that figure out of thin air, but it's sure. it's around there. Um, so it um, I don't think that it will be possible for women to ever feel um safe, completely safe at night or in other vulnerable situations. Uh, when encountering a a strange man, and there are very good evolutionary reasons and, uh, um, you know, there are very good reasons for caution. But on the other hand, of course, um, we, most people don't uh, demonize and vilify all men. Um, And we don't do that, even though there clearly is this um, large and significant differential in propensity to violence. And that is because, I think because for almost everybody, our lives, men's and women's lives are so inextricably intertwined that it would be impossible for us to um, feel completely alienated from the other sex or to demonize them. Um, And I suggest that if it's possible for us to do this um, between the sexes where very clear and obvious and uh differences um, occur, and there are overlapping but nevertheless with different um, two different peaks there are um, very clear average differences between men and women a whole range of fields then how much more possible must it be to um to not demonize people of of different races, so I'm I'm quite optimistic about the possibility of a world without racism. If I'm sp- I'm kind of looking sure. to a, a larger future, I think there will always be tribal um, distinctions and um, enmities. I'm not a utopian, but I think that. Um, the fact that we are able, we understand that you don't, um, you don't allow the actions of a small minority of individuals to, um, to color your your opinion of f- everybody in a particular group. That that bodes well for our ability to relate to people of different skin colors, ethnicities, and races because there it's not even clear that there are significant differences.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Um I think maybe a little less optimistic than you. Um <laughs> I, I, I faced it very optimistically. Yeah, you did. Maybe um, more than
1: I, I felt. But Sure. You
0: know. That I mean that yeah, I, I see what you're getting at though. I, I, I do think maybe um over the long term as rates of interracial marriage um go up. Um, and I think they are going up in the U S that, um, you know, the closer the bonds we have with people of different, uh, ethnic backgrounds, um, the less racism there's likely to be, but I think it's going to be over the long haul for sure.
1: Oh yeah. 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 Um, I do think that here in the UK, um, we very often have this kind of really American view of race imposed upon us. Mm-hmm. And, um, there seems to be just this. There was so much anger over the recent uh, race relations commission, um, UK um, commission, that found that the uh, there was um, it was all. So everyone on the commission was a person of color. That was done intentionally. Um, there were no no white people on this commission, and they found that um, that there was not there was there is not significant systemic racism in britain that was the commission's finding and it's it's been greeted with enormous anger and wow. i i can't actually i i can't speak to whether the commission's finding is correct or not i haven't looked in i haven't looked into the report in detail um but what i did notice is that people seemed they seemed uninterested in um the truth of whether or not there is a lot of systemic racism in the UK they seem to want from the beginning only one answer um was possible and would be acceptable to them and that is that it was absolutely widespread and in very similar ways to in the US and i just don't think that's the case i'm if it, if we just take um black men in the UK um because that's that seems to be the group that in the U.S. Um, people feel are subjected to the most racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, after, after Indigenous and Native Americans, um, who are a very small group, and obviously a group we don't have. Um, in the U.K., there are huge differences in outcomes, depending on um, which Which group of um, black Brits you're talking about, whether you're talking about Windrush generation or people who came from the Afro-Caribbean region or more recent um, immigrants from Africa, we don't have one large group with a distinctive history as you do in the U.S., Mm -hmm. um, the ADOS, um, African Descendants of Slaves. Um, And you can also, uh, for example, you can also, su- certain groups um, are very prosperous. So for example, and, and are prosperous in certain areas. So for example, um, Black uh, Black Brits are 3%, 3% of Britain, but they are 6% of um, doctors. Um, and I think they're also overrepresented in some of the other professions and that is they're underrepresented on the other hand in um, areas of of in professions and jobs which it's really difficult to break into unless your family is affluent and can support you Mm -hmm. because the jobs themselves don't pay well so particularly the media and the arts so not many black men are actors Um, and that's because many of them come from families that are uh many of them are second generation or third generation immigrants and immigrant families tend to like their their um their children to go into into secure and well-earning professions um so those these kinds of discrepancies why are there why are not as many black guys actors um You know i really don't think that's because of racism on the part of directors right i think it's because um, only a very small proportion of of any group can go into acting i'd also add that um, lower class white boys are the uh, lowest performing of all groups Hmm. Um, so class is a more important factor than race in that in um, economic outcomes and school outcomes, and um, also that the areas, of the country that are most um, that have the highest unemployment and the most crime, are not the most ethnically diverse. Um, so the areas in the northeast and in Scotland are actually very predominantly white areas. So that I think the picture is very complicated in the here in the UK. Okay. And we also, of course, have some very large ethnic groups who are, um, who on average do much better than white Brits, like Indians and Indians, mm-hmm. um, who are the top performing group here. Um, so um, there's all of that. And then there's also the fact that we have, um, looking again at, um, at, Black men. I've just been talking to Tommy Owuladi about, um, uh, black British men. Um, and, um, half of all black men are, are in relationships with non-black women, mostly white women. So that's an awful lot of, of mixed families Mm -hmm. and people who's, who have quote unquote mixed race kids, Mm -hmm. um, with their, with their, between their white and, white and black quote, unquote, partners. Mm-hmm. Um, also, many people who are in blended families. Um, so they have stepchildren, et cetera. You know, my friend, Liam Kofi Bright, who everybody, who, you know, Americans consider black and each person in his family has a different skin color. Mm-hmm. And that's, that I find totally normal. Sure. So... Uh, the whole kind of idea that there is a separate category which is black people is thrown a little bit into question if half of them are in relationship who are in relationships are in relationships with non-black people Mm -hmm. how do you how do you kind of classify that so okay sorry i made a long speech there (laughs) (laughs) no that's all right
0: um like to go now to our closing question, which is, can you tell me about a time when you heard an argument from someone you disagreed with, and you thought, you know, he might have a point?
1: Um, I was thinking about that this morning, I can't think of a, a recent precise example, all I can tell you is this happens to me very, very frequently, mm-hmm. almost never at the moment of hearing the argument. almost always my first response. Um, on encountering disagreement with my views, is to fight my corner. My first response is to go into defensive mode. And, but very often, days later, maybe months later, even years later, I suddenly realize, oh shit, I was wrong and this person was correct <laughs> actually. Um, so, it may seem as though those kinds of arguments are pointless, that you will never convince anyone, but. I think you can convince people, but often what you do is plant the seed mm-hmm. and then they will they will come around to your view later or it will gradually accumulate there with other evidence right. for the other point of view and just shift you over. Um, so that has happened to me really frequently. And there is an odd kind of am- emotional amnesia that I have about disagreements, which I think I'm not the only one to have this, which is that I... I often feel ferociously opposed to people who have people's point of view and it's different from mine. I usually don't mind the people at all. I can Mm -hmm. at least separate that out. But I Mm -hmm. think, how can you possibly think that? That is so idiotic. Um, And I forget the fact that I myself used to think things that I now think are idiotic not that long ago. That's funny. Um, So it all works in progress. Mm -hmm. Cool. But in the heat of the moment, in the heat of argument, um, I do tend to forget that. I have been mellowing, but um, I am a bit of a hothead. I apologize to anybody who I have singed. <laughs> um,
0: Got it. All right. Well, uh, Iona, Italia, thank you so much for coming on. You might have a point. Thank you. That's all for today. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Please also take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. One programming note. I had been releasing episodes on a weekly schedule, but I'm going to do so on a more ad hoc basis over the next couple months. I hope to return to a more regular schedule after that. Thanks for listening and take care.